Congratulations, America. You've returned to your senses. It's a bit preemptive. Welcome to a breath of fresh earth. Taking the commitment to a clean environment to the next level. Your host, Rick Friedman, will crown the climate hero and villain of the week. Along with discussing worldwide environmental issues, showcasing new products designed with the longevity of our planet in mind, and putting the spotlight on the individuals making a big impact in helping the climate and pollution crisis through social media. Now, your host, Rick Friedman. The President withdrew the United States from the Paris Agreement Accords one year ago. The U.S. exit formally took effect last Wednesday, one day after the election. Re-entry will take effect 30 days after President-elect Biden notifies the United Nations of his intentions. That means the earliest the United States would be able to officially rejoin the deal would be on February 19th, one month after he takes office. The goal of the Paris Agreement was to help keep global temperatures rising by more than 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. The agreement requires each signatory to submit their own national plan, setting targets for emission reductions and specifying pathway forward how they were going to meet those targets. Despite the 2015 agreement, carbon emissions have increased every year. Check out the website Climate Action Tracker. You can see where your country ranks on the list. There's a few countries that are on the critically insufficient list, and not a surprise, one of them is is the United States, Argentina, Russian Federation, and Saudi Arabia. The irony for the Middle East and North Africa in particular, the Gulf, is they're the area scientists say will be hit worst by changes in climate. Temperatures are already rising there and rainfall is decreasing. Well, let's flip it around. Who's doing good? Morocco. That's it. Just one country is making the grade based on the newest update from September. Morocco built the largest solar farm in the world, covering the size of 3,500 football fields. It generates enough electricity to power two cities the size of Marrakesh. India and Ethiopia are the only other countries meeting the two degrees threshold set by the agreement. Chinese customers bought a million electric cars last year, but it's also the largest consumer of coal. Come on, fellas, choose a side. Almost 60% of new cars sold in Norway are electric. That's encouraging. My hope is that with the United States re-entering the world and the agreement, we'll push other countries to work with us and develop new technologies and increase the commitment to keep global temperatures from rising more than 2 degrees Celsius. Here's a quick review of some key dates in our climate history. In 1823, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is 290 parts per million. They found that through ice core samples taken in the 1980s. In 1824, French scientist Jean-Baptiste Joseph Fourier described Earth's atmosphere as an insulating blanket for the planet. He was the first one to use the phrase greenhouse effect. We'll celebrate Fourier's birthday on the podcast next March. In 1859, John Tyndall, an Irish physicist, discovered that carbon dioxide is very good at trapping heat in the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide can block heat radiation. Tyndall was featured in episode 12. In 1896, Swedish scientist, try saying that three times fast, Svante Arrhenius was the first one to say that increases in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere due to burning coal would cause a global warming effect. Coal replaced wood as the predominant energy source in the United States. 
I featured Svante on the second episode of the podcast back in February. He told us in 1896 what was going to happen. Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. You all know that. But did you know in 1917, he also wrote, the unchecked burning of fossil fuels would have sort of a greenhouse effect. And the net result is the greenhouse becomes sort of a hothouse. If he was alive today, he'd be amazed that a telephone fits in our shirt pocket, but not surprised that we're heating the planet to dangerous levels. In 1931, E.O. Hulbert, an American scientist, continued the work of Arrhenius, included atmospheric water vapor, and found that increases in carbon dioxide levels would increase global average temperatures by as much as approximately 7.2 degrees Fahrenheit. In 1938, Guy Callender, an English engineer, looked at historical temperature records and carbon dioxide levels from around the world and concluded that levels had increased almost 10% since the 19th century and temperatures were warming globally. That was over 80 years ago. Climate change is not new. And in 1956, Gilbert Ploss, an American physicist, published The Carbon Dioxide Theory of Climate Change and said that more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would increase global warming. In 1957, the brilliant Roger Revelle, a California scientist, said there's a limit to how much carbon dioxide the ocean could absorb from the atmosphere and remain healthy. And in 1958, Charles Keeling, one of my favorites, California scientist used new technology to measure levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. He measured atmospheric carbon dioxide at 315 parts per million in 1958. In 1963, the annual average of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was measured at 318 parts per million. A few months ago, in September of 2020, the levels in the atmosphere were 411.29 and climbing. We talked about Charles Keeling often. Check out episode 5 for more about him. In 1981, climatologist Wigley and Jones wrote, the effects of carbon dioxide may not be detectable until around the turn of the century. In 2003, scientists reported that increases in atmospheric carbon dioxide resulted in increased absorption of carbon dioxide in the oceans, causing a change in the pH of the oceans. We just talked about that a couple episodes ago. In 2007, scientists reported that the melting of Arctic sea ice has been faster than the models originally predicted. In 2008, the U.S. Forest Service published a report called Strategic Framework for Responding to Climate Change. That report outlined strategies that help support adaption to climate change in our forests. In 2013, the average level of CO2 in the atmosphere was 396 parts per million. In 2013, scientists measured the mean global temperature at 58 degrees Fahrenheit, the warmest it had been in thousands of years. Remember the words of Charles Darwin, It is not the strongest of the species that survive nor the most intelligent, but the ones most responsive to change. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Virab Hadran Ramanathan was born on November 24, 1944 in India. He's a brilliant scientist and has contributed to many areas of the atmospheric and climate sciences. He's a member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences He's spoken about the topic of global warming and written that the effect of greenhouse gases on global warming is, in his opinion, the most important environmental issue facing the world today. He's received the prestigious Tang Prize for Sustainable Development in 2018 and is a Champions of the Earth Award winner, which is like the best name for an award ever. Dr. Ramanathan is a distinguished professor at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. In the 1970s, he discovered the greenhouse effect of CFCs and numerous other man-made trace gases, and forecasted way back in 1980 
that global warming would be detectable by the year 2000. He, along with Paul Crutzen, led an international team that first discovered the presence of widespread atmospheric brown clouds, also known as ABCs. I'd never heard of that before. So I looked up the definition, and here's what I found out about ABCs. Atmospheric brown cloud, a layer of air pollution containing aerosols such as soot or dust that absorb as well as scatter incoming solar radiation, leading to regional and global climate effects and posing risks to human health and food security. This layer extends from the Earth's surface to an altitude of roughly two miles. All right, now I know that. Thanks, Google, and a special thanks to the good doctor. Happy birthday. Joe Biden will be our next president. Now we must hold the next administration accountable to bold and urgent climate actions, just as if the orange buffoon had won. Each day we wait for action on the climate crisis, we fall a little bit further down the road to no return. There's still two months left for the current president to make climate and pollution crisis worse. But let's review, perhaps for the last time, some of the things the loser in the 2020 election, that has a nice ring to it, Let's review some of the things the loser in the 2020 election has done to make our lives unhealthier during his four years in charge. Okay, here we go. Made it easier to lease public land for oil and gas drilling. Enabled the expansion of offshore drilling. Proposed making 85% of the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska available for oil and gas drilling. Amended the rule that reduced toxic air pollutants from petroleum refineries. Rolled back rules prohibiting the hunting of bears and other predators in Alaska National Preserves. Removed protections from the endangered Atlantic bluefin, tuna. Lifted restrictions on mining in Bristol Bay, Alaska. Changed the way the Endangered Species Act is applied and making it harder to protect animals and plants. Reversed a rule that prevented taking sand from protected areas to replenish other beaches. Weakened a rule that directs states to improve visibility at national parks by controlling pollution. Big breath. Proposed opening most U.S. coastal waters up to oil and gas drilling. Weaken the Clean Water Act, giving the federal government more power to overrule state objections to put projects. Opened up drilling on 9 million acres of public land in the West. Abandoned efforts to reduce emissions from large sewer treatment plants. Delayed implementation of a rule intended to limit pesticide exposures to agricultural workers. Proposed amended emission standards for brick kilns and clay pots manufacturing based on concerns from industry. Proposed revisions to carbon dioxide emission standards for new or retrofitted power plants. Weaken toxic pollution and water rules for coal plants. Rolled back rules designated to prevent accidents at chemical facilities. Reduced the territories of two national monuments and opened up the removal lands for mining and drilling. Revoked an executive order protecting oceans, coastal areas, and the Great Lakes. I live right near a Great Lake. How dare you? Loosened controls on emissions of hazardous air pollutants from facilities like power plants and petroleum refineries. Announced and then walked back a repeal of a cap on gliders. Older, dirtier engines installed into new truck bodies. Delayed issuing and forcing new ozone pollution standards. Another deep breath. Weakened climate standards for new vehicles, which drew a proposed rule to protect groundwater near uranium mining sites, lifted a moratorium on new coal leasing on public lands, loosened enforcement of an air quality rule for states that pollute across state lines, approved the building of the Keystone XL pipeline, proposed rescinding a rule that required companies using federal land to prove that they will have the financial means to commission a project, proposed weakened regulations on the type of equipment required for exploratory drilling operations in the Arctic, approved the building of the Dakota Access Pipeline, Weakened monetary penalties for automakers who fail to meet the fuel efficiency standards. Proposed opening the protected Congress na National Forest in Alaska to logging and road construction. Authorized oil and gas leasing on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge Coastal Plain. Proposed changes to rules governing high emissions from power plant startups, shutdowns, and malfunctions. 
changed the process for setting energy conservation standards for consumer products, withdrew a proposed rule to protect whales, turtles, and dolphins in the Pacific, reduced oversight of the air pollution that can result when companies build a new facility like a plastic plant or modifies an existing one, rescinded policies requiring companies to offset environmental harms to public lands, reversed climate rules for the electricity sector, suspended use of an Obama-era calculation of the social cost of carbon, which seeks to tally the money spent and lives lost as a result of climate change, repealed a rule to prevent coal mining companies from dumping waste in streams, ordered federal agencies to review rules impeding energy production, resulting in numerous environmental rollbacks, repealed a rule updating Bureau of Land Management process to better account for and resolve ecological pressures on public lands, delayed rules to cut methane emissions from landfills, reversed rules for methane pollution from oil and gas operations. Methane is the second most emitted greenhouse gas. Proposed subsidizing cold fire and nuclear generation in markets where other sources were more economic. Proposed cutting funding to clean up the Chesapeake Bay to meet EPA water quality standards. Proposed relaxing rules on how much states can send pollution downstream to neighboring states. Open the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument to commercial fishing. Rescinded requirements limiting super-polluting refrigerants like hydrofluorocarbons, which deplete the ozone layer. Weaken protections on hunting, capturing, or killing migratory birds. Rolled back fracking regulations that protect drinking water on federal or tribal lands. Weakened regulations on pesticides used in national wildlife refuge. Halted a rule that tightened air pollution standards for offshore drilling operations. Approved seismic air gun surveys for offshore oil and gas exploration, a technique that can harm marine wildlife in new areas of the ocean not yet available for leasing. Weakened offshore drilling regulations designed to prevent system failures that would result in oil or gas being released into the water. Weakened environmental reviews for major projects and exempted projects from review. Proposed easing rules that regulate where companies can mine for hard rock minerals, exempted farmers and ranchers from requirements to report emissions from animal waste, attempted to rescind a rule meant to ensure public gets a fair trial for minerals recovered on public lands, discontinued a National Park Service policy discouraging the sale of plastic water bottles in parks, proposed weakening pesticide regulations meant to protect agricultural workers, proposed to weaken grazing restrictions on public lands. Personally, I never graze on public lands. Declined to ban a toxic pesticide that has been banned for use in American homes for the last 20 years due to scientific evidence linking it to a rash of health problems, including brain developmental problems in children. Transferred the authority over cross-border infrastructure permits from the State Department to the President, thereby shielding such decisions from environmental and just judicial review. Eliminated a rule to prevent waste by requiring oil and gas operations on federal lands to limit venting and flaring of methane. A second Trump term would have been game over for the future of our health. Good riddance. Now it's time for the Climate Villain of the Week. There are no villains today. I feel like the mayor of Munchkinland, after Dorothy's house lands on the Wicked Witch of the West, and the mayor announces, Then this is a day of independence for all the Munchkins and their descendants. In fact, there's a lot of lines from the movie that could fit into a discussion about the soon-to-be former president. How about this one? Some people without brains do an awful lot of talking, don't they? Or, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And you can't forget this emotional line near the end of the movie after the Tin Man asks the wizard for a heart. And the wizard says, You want a heart? You don't know how lucky you are not to have one. Hearts will never be practical until they can be made unbreakable. The president came pretty damn close to breaking my heart. I don't think I could have handled another four years of him. And to those who believe the election was stolen, I say, You have no power here. Be gone before someone drops a house on you, too. 
We have the first post-election interview with Melania Trump. We've sent her words through an English translation machine so you can understand her. And we sent our correspondent, Wheezy McWeeklung, to the White House. And oh boy, did he come through for us. Hi, Rick. This is what I heard near the Abe Lincoln bedroom. So, I moved closer. Check this out. It's like I was a fly on the wall, like the one on Pence's head during the debate. I am not putting up with this anymore. Putting up with what? I I can't talk to people? I am out of here. (laughs) Melania, pardon me. Thank you for taking a minute to talk with me under such trying circumstances. What's the first thing you did after you realized your husband lost the election? Evacuation sequence activated. What did the president-elect, Joe Biden, say to the president during their first conversation? Get out of my house! And what did your husband do when the call ended? Ah! That's all I got. Catch you next time, hopefully from somewhere with clean air. Thanks, Wheezy. That was outstanding work. I want to talk about the American holiday of Thanksgiving. I'm not ignoring the horrors of what happened to Native Americans and how the Thanksgiving story is taught to American children. There are many options to learn about the origins of Thanksgiving, and I encourage you to discover the truths about the shameful time in American history. My purpose on this podcast is to discuss the environmental aspects of the holiday meal, not the foundation of the holiday. Due to the pandemic, I haven't seen two of my children in months, but we'll be together, with caution, for the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday. There's much to be thankful for. The United States election has lifted a blanket of dread that's been hanging over my head for almost five years. Without you-know-who at the helm of our government, I'm excited about the future of the world, expecting the United States to lead the world in innovation and help guide us through the difficult times ahead. Is that too optimistic? Perhaps, but considering my state of mind prior to the election, I am full steam ahead with good thoughts and can't wait to see what's to come in the future. I pray for the new president and the end of the pandemic. In the meantime, About this Thanksgiving meal, I'm here with Ivy and her mom, Joanna, and we're talking about a great Thanksgiving tradition here in America. Ivy, can you guess what it is? Football? (laughs) No, although that's part of it. If we don't act on climate issues, the traditional Thanksgiving foods Americans eat could be vastly different in the future. Americans consume on average about one and a half pounds of turkey and 4,500 calories per person. What we put on our plates on Thanksgiving is changing, thanks to climate change. So how will our Thanksgiving foods continue to change? Turkeys face a worrisome future as heat waves and hotter temperatures become increasingly common. When temperatures rise, turkeys don't grow as big and could even die from heat exhaustion or heat stroke. I like the dark meat. My older brother says I'm stupid. Kids say the darndest things. As temperatures in potato-growing regions rise and rains become less reliable, farmers are trying to adapt to keep their harvest safe. But unless they can develop a heat-resistant variety, potato farmers will have a difficult time growing their crops and face tough choices about moving their farms. What? No sweet potatoes? There's also a nutritional element in how climate change affects potatoes and other plants. 
Studies show rising carbon dioxide emissions alter the makeup of most plants, changing their nutritional value. Because of these genetic changes, foods like potatoes and pumpkins and other crops will contain more starch and sugar and fewer nutritional minerals. The cranberry is no fan of extreme weather. Frosts and floods can cut yields, and heat waves can cause an unpleasant rot. With temperatures on the rise, cranberry growers are facing an uncertain future, too. We've already seen what could happen. Back in 2012, an early spring and extreme heat meant cranberry production in Massachusetts dropped 23 million pounds in one year alone, enough to leave a bitter taste in the mouth. Rick, that's not funny. Not everybody wants to go gluten-free these days, especially when there's stuffing on the dinner table. Scientists project that warming temperatures mean yields of stable crops like wheat, corn, and rice will decline. Hotter areas like sub-Saharan Africa may have trouble growing these crops at all as production shifts to cooler climates. Your typical pumpkin pie thrives with ample water and cool autumn temperatures. But with record droughts in California, one of the United States' biggest pumpkin producers, farmers struggle to get their harvest ready for the season. On the other hand, too much water, like floods, also spells bad news for pumpkins. We saw that in 2009 when there was a shortage, squashing hopes for pumpkin pies, when Nestle, the leading manufacturer of canned pumpkins, told consumers there wouldn't be enough canned pumpkin for Thanksgiving. My favorite Thanksgiving movie is a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. Yeah, that was always a favorite. I'm partial to planes, trains, and automobiles, but you can never go wrong with Charlie Brown. Wine is made from grapes, which are part of a plant group known as perennials. Perennials are planted once and last for years. Crops harvest each cycle, which makes them especially vulnerable to climate change. When extreme weather occurs, which is happening more intensely and frequently in many parts of the world, you can't just simply relocate the grapes. They're stuck where they're planted. Grapes are sensitive to temperature changes. When temperatures get too hot, the fruit starts to break down, spoiling the entire crop. If you start messing with our alcohol, you'll definitely get our attention. With the climate changing and the virus killing people around the world, there's a lot more to be concerned about than the Thanksgiving meal. But the thing is, we can do something about it. We don't have to accept a future where our favorite foods are just too expensive or too hard to grow. Be safe this year. Ivy, what do you think about all this? Could you please pass the stuffing? Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Gobble, gobble, gobble. Be sure to share the podcast on your favorite social media channels. It's time for the Climate Hero of the Week. You want heroes? How about the 77 million people and counting who voted for Joe Biden and the thousands that pounded the streets on his behalf and the thousands that made phone calls, like my friends Lisa and Richard, Mort, Susie and Mark and others who mailed hundreds of letters to undecided voters around the nation urging them to vote. Your commitment made a difference. You should be proud. Unlike 2016, there are no regrets and it feels great. Biden's victory gives us a chance to stop the worst effects of climate change. There are no guarantees, but I feel like we have a chance. The best news is that Biden has already announced that science, not politics, will lead the way forward. Biden has said he will make 10 executive actions on his first day as president to combat the crisis and reduce emissions. Here's the list. Require limits on methane pollution for oil and gas operations. Use the federal government procurement system to work towards 100% clean energy and zero-emission vehicles. Ensure U.S. government buildings and facilities are more efficient and climate-ready. Implement the already existing Clean Air Act and reduce greenhouse gas emissions from transportation by developing new fuel economy standards to ensure all new sales for light and medium-duty vehicles will be electrified 
and annual improvements for heavy-duty vehicles. Double down on liquid fuels like advanced biofuels and make agriculture a key part of the solution to the climate crisis. Reduce emissions and cut consumer costs through a new standard for appliance and building efficiency. Require federal permit decisions to consider effects of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change and ensure every federal infrastructure investment reduces climate pollution. Require public companies to disclose climate risks and greenhouse gas emissions in their operations and supply chains. Uh, They're not going to like that one. Protect biodiversity, slow extinction rates, and conserve 30% of America's lands and waters by 2030. Permanently protect the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Establish national parks and monuments. Ban new oil and gas permits on public lands and waters. Modify royalties to account for climate costs and creating programs to enhance reforestation and develop renewable energy on federal lands and waters to double offshore wind by 2030. This is great news. Go get him, Joe. Each week I sign off with a shout-out to the great scientist and inventor Galileo. He lost his battle against truth, despite having the scientific proof to vindicate his ideas. Thankfully, the United States will soon be listening to scientists again to combat climate change and the virus. If you're listening up there, good night, Galileo. And that is it. Thanks for listening to A Breath of Fresh Earth with your host, Rick Friedman. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you're the first to hear new episodes. If you want to nominate someone for Climate Hero of the Week, send it to Rick at the link below. This has been A Breath of Fresh Earth. Thanks for listening.